Life Out Loud is a literary nonfiction podcast series that features real student stories. Born in a John Jay College creative nonfiction writing classroom in the fall 2015 semester, Life Out Loud seeks to diversify the perspectives typically shared in the CNF genre. Our project aims to amplify voices seldom heard through artful truth-telling simply because we believe that all stories matter. We make them, and they make us. You can always listen at lifeoutloudpodcast.com. Hi there, and welcome back to Life Out Loud, a not-so-new-anymore literary nonfiction podcast through which we, as always, tell true, maybe all-too-true stories. I'm Karen, back again as one of your hosts today um, for this first episode of Season 2. We've missed you all so much and are so happy to be back. And I'm Edward, and yes, we're finally back for season two. Even more stories for more incredible young CUNY student writers. Thank you for joining us for episode seven entitled Motherland. And finally, I'm your third host, Stephen. All three stories tonight feature authors who attempt to make sense of their mothers or their mother's mothers, complicated histories and relationships with the land that birthed them. They also, you might argue, do so in an attempt to navigate their own personal relationships with their mothers, in an attempt to display and showcase their deep love for them. Our first piece is actually written in Tanzania on a study abroad program. This piece, entitled Koburi Orgullo Pride, is by Ariana Castillo. Ariana Castillo is a 23-year-old senior at John Jay, majoring in forensic psychology and minoring in gender studies and Africana studies. She escaped her small town of Bayonne, New Jersey at 18 when she moved to New York to pursue higher education. She was shocked when she realized most of her learning happened outside of the context of a textbook. In 2013, she had the unique experience of participating in John Jay's Prison to College Pipeline program. She was amazed by all of the untold stories and hushed potential living within this institution and has since committed herself to advocating for prison reform and juvenile justice. Throughout her time in college, Ariana has been thoroughly involved on campus. She works as a peer success coach and team leader for student academic success programs. She is also a Ronald E. McNair Scholar and Vera Fellow. This summer, Ariana traveled halfway across the world to study travel writing in Tanzania. Her experience working in Lighten Africa, an orphanage near the base at Mount Kilimanjaro, was perhaps the most enlightening of all. After working in orphanages in Dominican Republic for the past five years, Ariana has humbled to expand the work she had grown so passionate of. These are the stories she holds most dearly. Outside of school, Ariana is a proud aunt to two nieces and a nephew and mama to her one-year-old German shepherd, Mix Nala. Let's take a listen to Kiburi Orgullo Pride. I'm a mother, she began, and I know when my children bring me gifts, I always show them love because if not, they'll be scared to bring me gifts. The Bagamoyo Tanzania vendor story is triggered by my incessant inability to choose a Tanzanian souvenir for my mom back home in Bayonne, New Jersey. I just, I want to make sure I get something she'll like. As we speak, the vendor's fingers trace the silhouette of the statue. A statue of a pregnant African woman 
holding an infant on her back, a sack on her head, a bag under her left arm, two small children stick by her side, attached to her core, literally and figuratively. This hard-working mother, the merchant elaborates, pointing towards the statue. She depicts the scene, explains what the woman could have been doing that day, perhaps at the market, a sack of goods on her head, a bag scraped into her fingers. She'd had no one to leave her kids with, the merchant states. Her fingers outline each of the woman's attributes while she describes them. I wonder if she's directly or just indirectly speaking of herself. As she continues to set the scene, I unexpectedly realize why I was attracted to this piece to begin with. You see the mother, you see the children, she points out, but where is the father? Suddenly in this market in Bagamoyo, Tanzania, I am brought back home. This wide wooden space, its dozens of tables, each filled with hundreds of figurines, each monitored by a merchant, desperate for a sale, dissipates. I am transported to one of the sources of my deepest heartbreaks. One of my mother's deepest heartbreaks. The merchant doesn't know it, but her question is one I have asked myself hundreds of times throughout my life. Where is daddy? My older sisters sometimes tell me I'm the lucky one. Since I was the youngest at the most tumultuous times in my parents' marriage, I have the least memory of just how rocky it truly was. But I remember some things. Like the four arms of my sisters wrapped around me on the roughest nights, nights our bodies shook in fear, our tears mixing together, until the fighting stopped, or until we fell asleep. One morning, we woke up to gifts in front of our bedroom doors, my dad's way of saying, let's forget the past and start anew. Funny, starting new things was one of my dad's fortes, actually. He started new relationships with several women throughout his marriage with my mother. But this was something I couldn't understand then, so I enjoyed the Barbie cashier set while I could, a souvenir commemorating his time with our family. And although my relationship with my dad would go on to improve over the years, I can still feel the pulse of that little girl, the one who wondered, where is daddy after he finally left us? As I stare at this statue, no partner by her side, small children at her knees, supplies in her hands on her head, the merchant continues to speak about the plight of mothers in Tanzania. The mothers I see throughout the country, while we travel in the comfort of our bus, they travel by the will of their feet. I see sacks on their heads, the pots on their heads, the four-foot logs on their heads, all perfectly balanced as if held up by an invisible string. They walk casually and alone. They show no pain, a stoicism that's revered throughout the country. And in each of these mothers... All I see is my own. All I see is the strongest woman I know. Sure, she doesn't carry pots or sacks on her head, but she most certainly has balanced the world on her shoulders for longer than I can remember. And while she didn't build houses like the Maasai tribes women do, she built our home from scratch in other ways, all on her own, with three girls to raise. I wanted to buy a souvenir from Tanzania that would personify the hardworking beauty I so loved and admired in her. 
a piece that would exemplify the strength of the women of the Maasai tribe and the love of the women of the Datoga tribe, a tribe of mostly women we met who exhibited a deep love for their sister wives, all 10 of them, some of whom they'd selected themselves. I wanted my mom to feel like we had when we'd gotten there. Loved. Remembered. They'd embraced us, those women, not like guests, but like long-lost wives, long-lost friends, daughters even. This piece right here at this table in Bagamoyo represented all of the above. For me. But would it for her? I struggled to picture this statue in my particular mother's house. We never have guests over, yet I envision her holding the figure and proudly telling the story of her adventurous youngest daughter, the one who traveled to Africa, the one who bought this piece home just for her. She'll like it, right? But I'm not so sure. I look at the other options on the table. Ugh, nothing else is right. I want something that will truly resemble Africa, the women of Africa, the way the statue surely does with its wide-set hips, cornrow braids, and wide-button nose. After all, as Dominicans, both my mom and I are of African descent. Would she see herself in it like I do? Would she see her roots in it? More importantly, would she be mad if she did? What if she hates it? What if she's insulted when I say it reminds me of her? What I was really asking was, what if it's too African? Because although my mother is a great woman, like all of us, she is flawed. And while I search for the various configurations of letters that will make this statement easier to say, perhaps more eloquent and less pejorative, the simple fact is this. My mom can be racist. Even and perhaps especially because of our Dominican history. Dominican Republic, the place of her birth and childhood, was once home to hundreds of thousands of slaves, both native Tainos and imported Africans from West Africa. However, after the genocide on the Tainos, the importation of African slaves expanded. By 1790, St. Dominic served as home to half a million enslaved Africans. That was 80% of the total population. It's also a well-known fact that traces of African culture are still evident throughout the country today. Just one example is mangu, the staple breakfast of Dominicans, which traces back to the West African dish fufu. Despite the obvious ties and the fact that nearly 90% of the country's current population is clearly black or mixed race, less than 5% of Dominicans self-identified as black in a recent census. <sighs> Needless to say, my mother is one such Dominican. She would never identify as African, even though she knows this history, and even though she knows that I do, in fact, identify as Afro-Latina. One recent topic of concern was that her granddaughter, my niece, wouldn't come out light enough, might look too Afro-Latina. The only thing... I heard her say, recounting the genealogical predisposition for my soon-to-be niece, is that Annalyn might be un poco prietica, a little darker. 
When I hear things like this, I can't help but think of my own future kids. Would they be safe from this? Their grandma's scrutiny of their skin color? Was I too dark for her? Had she thought this of me when I was born? Perhaps this worry of hers comes from a place of good, I would later hope. Maybe she worries about the discrimination that people of color, particularly black people, face. Maybe she just wants to save her granddaughter from this sort of harm. But deep down, I knew better. On another day, I'd yell, where are all the black people? As I saw yet another trailer for romantic comedy sending the usual message that black love is invalid, unimportant, and not real. Oh, Ariana, she would say in Spanish, you're getting worse than black people. On other occasions, she would insist that she wasn't the racist one. Black people are more racist than white people because black people are preemptively racist against white people. But wasn't her racism preemptive too? Wasn't it all the same? Mom! This conversation would come up again and again and again. One night, though, she'd had enough. But so had I. They don't have to put black people in their movies if they don't want to, Ariana, she'd exclaimed. But they do, Mom. Filmmakers have a responsibility to make their films reflective of the audiences paying to watch them and the societies in which they take place. I forget the rest, but it went something like this. She screams, I scream, nothing is heard over and over. This was a problem. The problem, she'd move to end the argument, is that you think that everything you say is right. Well, that was true. I did spend a lot of time growing up thinking I was always right. But at this moment, this time, I was never more certain that I was right and she was wrong. She was wrong, right? With a firm belief that she was wrong on this, I came back at her one last time in an attempt to synthesize everything I'd ever learned as an Africana studies minor in order to make her understand, in order to make her want to understand, I tried one last thing. We cannot... I said as calmly as possible, act like hundreds of years of slavery and oppression haven't taken a deteriorating social and economic toll on this group of people, Mom. Ay, Ariana, deja tu educación en la escuela. What? Really? She wanted me to leave my education at school, the one we'd both broken our backs to pay for? Realizing this conversation was going nowhere, I urged her to let me know when she wanted to have a real conversation about race. I am still waiting. And so was this vendor, the one waiting to see whether or not I'd buy this piece. Here, in this artisan market, once a slave market, where hundreds of thousands of women, men, and children were sold like the souvenirs I see here before me. Dominican Republic's role in the slave trade starts to pull on me, spin me in circles as I look around. It's dark, heavy, and rancid. 
Today I stand in this market as a tourist. 150 years ago, I could have been standing here as a slave. In this very market in the town of Bagamoyo, I can still hear the clashing of chains as the enslaved natives march towards the shore. For millions of Tanzanians, seeing Bagamoyo was the end of a turbulent six-month journey by foot, wondering which they walked, chained together, and to large logs they carried, their own anchors, only to next arrive at the beginning of a worse journey. The slaves that marched through Bagamoyo and onto Zanzibar were bought and shipped to several places. About a quarter went to Arabic countries and to India and Persia, where they were sterilized before entrance. Nearly a fifth went to South African countries, and over half remains on the East African coast. As a result, many of the town's current residents are the direct descendants of slaves, slave traders, slave owners, and porters. And here I stand in front of this woman who, for all intents and purposes, could have been a distant relative. And I have a choice to make. I stare at this statue looking for an answer. The answer that assures me that my mom, the one who put herself through school as a single mother of three, the one who strove every day to show us God is good, the one who took three months off of work when she couldn't afford to in order to sit by my side during chemotherapy, isn't that flawed. The answer that tells me that she will, of course, love any gift I get her, that she will show it off even, that she will see herself in it, really see herself in it, and not hate that sight. My professor approaches me and lets me know to start wrapping up my purchases. Ugh, time is ticking. I'm about to just choose some candlestick with an elephant on it instead, make it easy, but does my mom even like elephants? No, that's it. I'm getting the figure of the mother. But what if it infuriates her? My leg begins shaking with the impatience for my own decision. I analyze the figure once more. I stare into the mother's face deeply, hoping for a sign again. Maybe she will give me that reassuring smile my mother always gives me. The smile that tells me not to worry and that I'm on the right track. But she doesn't. I grasp the candle holder tighter in my hand while the mother statue fills with envy. Oh my goodness, why? Why is this so hard? I just want to get you a souvenir from Africa that you'll like. I just want to make you proud, mom. I just want you to be proud of me. I want you to be proud of us. I slowly let go of the figurine. Maybe forcing this gift on her, trying to make her see herself in it, see her the way I see her, isn't actually the best approach after all. I leave the vendor and I walk away slowly, no longer holding the statue, no longer staring into her face for a sign, no longer hoping she'll answer how I want her to, no longer gripping the smooth, solid darkness of her body in my hands. Yet still, I can feel her there. 
I can still feel the empty space in my palm where she was, where I held her. Because although she's not with me anymore, somehow she is. Oh my goodness, Ariana. This story, it will just always get me. I've heard it so many times. Um, over the summer, you did Action Fest Tanzania um, at the Ayadi Theater, and you performed this like three or four times. And you performed it a few times, and every single time, like I, I got choked up and I teared up, and this time was no different. It will always just like hit me right like in the fields as I would call them um and it's just so important because you touch on issues that really aren't and yeah just just thank you for being here thank you for sharing it with us and touching on this subject Karen and everyone thank you so much for having me here uh it's really such an honor since I just spent the last few weeks listening to every episode of um of the podcast um on every commute, everywhere I go. Um, and so it's so great to to be here myself. Um, and yeah, now I could give another people another reason to listen to it. Yes, to hear you and to hear this <laughs> story. That's, that's so important um, and so difficult because this is like your mother that you're talking mm -hmm. about and you touch on issues that like the first time I heard this I mean not the first time one of the last times for the summer mm -hmm. that I heard this I was with my own mother mm -hmm. and you know she brought up that like oh my goodness she's talking about her mom mm -hmm. but and I was a bit apprehensive to see how my mom would take it <laughs> because you know it's something in Latin culture you don't yeah. disrespect your mama exactly. you know exactly. um and she kind of surprised me and she said no sometimes moms need to kind of be called out for this too mm -hmm. so but it doesn't make it any much harder. I mean, it doesn't make it any easier, you know, on the kids. So what was it like for you to, you know, go about writing something like this that's so, like, difficult but also so truthful about your mother? Yeah, it was actually um, a really, really difficult process to sit down and start um, – and start just letting my feelings out onto the paper. This piece actually just started. This piece, this piece actually just um, went off of the the part where the vendor um, asks, "Where's the father?" And it was just a really long piece about like daddy issues and um, my own um, difficult relationship with my father. Um, and then I had included some things about like being too scared to buy uh, the souvenir because of racial bias. And um, that's when Professor Madrazo was really like, "Let's like." I want to hear more about this. And I think that mm. this is where um, the story is. And uh, it was incredibly difficult. It took a lot for me to actually just to sit down and start writing the, the piece because uh, I never wanted to, um, although I understood that these things were true and I, although I understood that it bothered me, I never wanted to villainize my mother and I never mm. wanted to, um, I never wanted her to feel like if she ever read this piece, like I never wanted her to feel um, as if like, I like I was keeping a secret from her, or um, so it was definitely difficult for me to write it down. But that fear and that apprehension towards writing it was really what made me understand that this was a story that needed to be told. And um, I know for a fact that I'm not the only Dominican who lives in this um, in this world where you're now educated and you now understand that um, the things that you grew up with are not right, uh, and you need to call them out in a sense. 
so I'm really glad that you brought that up because as a fellow uh, Dominican, I, it's something that isn't talked about, um, but it's definitely something I've uh, realized um, from hearing others speak, um, especially like Life Out Loud, uh, that there is this uh you know, cultural bias that Dominicans have against uh, people that are darker skinned and are Af uh, are African roots. Um, my my family definitely, you know, so it, it's something um, that uh, you know occurs in my family as well. Uh, some of my darker, some of the people, some of the people in my family that are darker, my dad will say, "Oh, they're not really our family because he's you know he's light skinned." Um, he I mean, he says it jokingly, but there is uh, you know definitely some bias there. And yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, this is, and just as you said, your father jokes around um, with it. I think that that's really how this culture of um, racism and discrimination has continued throughout um, Dominican Republic is because we say these things jokingly, um, mm -hmm. but as we need to understand, there's there's true bias behind those jokes, mm -hmm. uh, and so these conversations are one that continue ne that need to continue happening in order for us to expose um, those things because um, if not then w if we keep it hushed then it's doing no service to us our Dominicans you're, you're totally right yeah absolutely and speaking as um, a Salvadorian Latina who is kind of on the opposite side of that mm. um, I'm very pale so my whole life my my whole life um, my parents, I've had to hear like my, I've had to hear people tell my parents kind of the opposite mm -hmm. thing. We're in saying that you're lucky that your daughter is so pale, mm -hmm. you know, you're lucky that she's so white because they have this like internalized notion that being dark is bad. Mm -hmm. So the lighter you are, the better you are, quote unquote, you yeah. know, and it's such an issue. Yeah, like it's you, definitely an issue. Um, when we talk about, um, completely devaluing um, a person just given um, one small fact that they have more melanin than you mm -hmm. um, is is atrocious and um, unfortunately this is this is something that not only exists within Dominican culture but as you mentioned you're Salvadorian there is black people in every single Latin American Absolutely. country and um, they're not immune to this and so although I think that Dominican um, Republic plays a special role in um in the promotion of um of institutionalized racism and sy systematic racism mm -hmm. um just give it and i think that it goes back so uh, just with throughout the history of dominican republic um the history of our dictator trujillo um and his um the massacre of of um haitian dominicans and things like that so i think it's much more um much more historically prevalent than we'd like to admit um but it's definitely uh, an issue that our black people are, all are facing throughout the um, the world. Look at today yes. how we have to have a Black Lives Matter movement exactly. because of the discrimination of um, brown and black bodies. And so um, conversations like this, I think, need to persist and need to be um, given more ear to because these are the conversations that are going to continue educating and enlightening people who have these biases. Absolutely. Absolutely. This conversation actually actually reminds me of the phrase mejorar la raza, which translates to the betterment of the race, which basically has to do with the issue of um, whitening your roots, like mm -hmm. make, making like as the family tree continues, like to to add more whiteness to the mm -hmm. culture, to like lighten up the skin tone and 
in a in a sense like cover up mm -hmm. the culture you got with this one that is that we have. Yeah, somebody add by marrying. Yeah, mm -hmm. definitely. Mejorando la raza is um, just an attempt to um, move uh, move your future generations' traits towards a Eurocentric um, towards Eurocentric characteristics. So essentially, if I'm if I'm um, black or if I'm darker, I would want to marry um, someone who's white, someone who possibly has blue eyes because that increases the chance of my offspring being lighter. And hopefully if we continue these mantras like this, like we have um, for so long throughout Dominican culture, we will continue to um, to lighten our um, our children and therefore make your children mag magically better because now they're now lighter. They have... Mm -hmm. um, they have um, Straight, straighter hair they have they, uh, lighter eyes um and so yeah th this is um i think that um some of the pieces of uh some of the things that go on in my piece and some of the education i've taken on um, throughout my life has kind of surrounded itself around the notion that um you should better your race and i think by by saying things like that it essentially means black is bad so mm -hmm. therefore you need to make it better by adding white um and so this uh, this notion of black being bad and black being um, black being too ghetto or too hood mm. or um, or being black being thug um, those notions are 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 living and breathing throughout um, our culture today and then um, one of the things that aren't talked about is how these little things like this like mejorar la raza how these uh, little mantras and sayings get passed on throughout the home and happen. Um, and continue to occur. For example, when I was younger, um, my grandma asked me, um, well, Ariana, what are you going to marry? Are you going to marry a white guy or are you going to marry a black guy? Yeah. And I was like, well, I'm going to marry a black guy. And she was like, and she was like, no, no, why would you say that? No, you have to marry a white guy because black guys are this and this and this. I choose not to say it because I don't want to, it's, 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 it's almost hurtful to even repeat those words. Um, and so those are things that, what that conversation happened when I was what? When I was like four years old yeah. um so those are those small things is how we continue and like though you carry those things with you um whether you'd like to believe it or not they 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 live in your subconscious and we're these implicit biases um carry out so when i when i was younger and was didn't have this education of um of my own Af and when i denied not that i didn't have the education but rather i denied my african roots these were things that i openly said and I, I i had no shame in saying no i'm not black now i'd never be black like don't associate me like so um i think that it takes it takes conversations like this to uh, raise awareness and like i said in the beginning steven has lived it like we're not the only dominicans who have lived this story and i know we're not the only people who live this story you've mentioned it karen as as um someone who's from el salvador um i'm sure you um Edward have lived, have lived this, being from Bolivia. Um, we all, this I, this is a conversation that's going on globally um, and and victimizing and objectifying an entire race um, based on notions of like pre, uh, post-slavery and notions of colonialism. And these are things that have carried on through those, um, through those effects. Yeah, absolutely. You see it all the time in media in ways that people like almost subconsciously um, you see it all the time. I love Beyonce. Mm -hmm. it, it is no secret that I love me some Beyonce. <laughs> and I also love Jay-Z. And you see it all the time with their daughter, Blue Ivy, mm -hmm. where she has, you know, the more Afrocentric features mm -hmm. and she has darker skin and she has that, like, 
Yeah, she wears her in an afro. Yeah, exactly. And you see people bash this little girl all the time for her features. Yeah, you know, because she's not white enough, because yeah. she's not Eurocentric enough. Yeah, you know, and it's just like. It's just such an issue because you just can't do that to an entire race, mm-hmm. but also not look at the individual characteristics. Yeah. Like, this is a little girl who's going to grow up. Your Beyonce is, like, considered one of the most yeah. confident and beautiful women yeah. in the world, and she's going to grow up thinking that she is ugly yeah. because she is not as light as her mommy. Yeah. Her hair isn't the same as her mommy. And that's, like, so messed yeah. up that we don't and think of that. And like, even the resent she might have towards her mom for her, mm. because she's only this, this, um, she's only this famous. She's only made all these memes because her parents are so famous. And yes. so to think that everything, I think everyone was like kind of expecting Beyonce to have like a baby, like a Beyonce, a mini Beyonce. And so when it came out looking, um, when she came out with features that resembled more Jay-Z and these were not features by any means that, um, made her, um, less beautiful or less like any less anything she's not less than because she looks more like her father Uh, but the fact that we have uh continued to speak about this make memes about her in in uh, where where north on the other hand kim uh Mm -hmm. kim and kanye's child uh, receives all this praise in queen north and like you're praising a three-year-old little girl uh like and so no these kinds of things just continue to baffle me um and their presence um continue to baffle me at the same time i shouldn't be surprised i think that Mm -hmm. these these are all just forms of structural violence that have continued to weed out into our society today um so i'm not shocked that it's going on yeah unfortunately so, Ariana, on a lighter note, what did you end up getting your mother as a souvenir? Uh, so, I ultimately um, gave in and ended up buying her the uh, the souvenir, the elephant engraved candle holder. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, I just, um, I had to, this was something that agonized me the entire time. Like, the day before, we, I bought this gift probably, like, the first week into Tanzania. And the last week into Tanzania, the last day in Tanzania, I was still like, oh, is this a good gift? Like, so it's something I agonized over. It, and I'm still honestly not too sure if she likes elephants, per se. <laughs> but, um, I mean, it's home, so <laughs> it's there. Well, Ariana, thank you so much for being here with us and for sharing your story as well as your thoughts thank you so much oh thank you so much thank you all um and good luck on the rest of the season i'm really looking forward to hearing all of them thanks (laughs) (laughs) so our next piece is entitled traitor which focuses on similarly rocky aspects of a writer's relationship with her mother. This piece is by Melissa Gady, a 20-year-old studying at John Jay College of Criminal Justice. She is currently working on being an English major, but has not decided on a career path yet. Most of her time is spent studying or working at Stop and Shop, but in her downtime, she enjoys reading manga and playing video games. Let's give this piece a listen. I've been sitting in the same spot for an uncountable number of minutes, trapped in an internal debate. My room is filled with the hazy, muted colors of dusk. The light seems to match my struggle, so I make no move to flip the light switch. I stare uncertainly at the object to blame for my torn feelings, a laptop. It is already open, 
but the screen remains black. I have yet to press the power button. It really shouldn't be this hard. Just press a button, right? But I don't want to turn it on just to turn it back off again. And so I remain in a state of conflicting boredom and anguish, knowing that deciding whether or not to watch some newly released anime series shouldn't make me feel this way. Or should it? You know you're Chinese, right? The question is always asked with a joking tone, and usually after I finish nerdily gushing about some anime character. It's something my friends tease me about before we all laugh. Despite their fake concern, I do, in fact, know that I'm not Japanese. Just because I'm Chinese doesn't mean I can't watch anime. My hand hovers over the laptop's power button. I'm going to press it. I am. I mean, what's wrong with a few episodes? Nothing. But my brain is unable to properly communicate with my limb. This is when I can hear her voice through my own thoughts again. The voice that strangles me. You are a traitor, the voice says. You turned out to be a very disappointing daughter. Shouldn't you stop? The words ooze poison into my mind, and I allow the assault to continue. I desperately wish my mother could chase away this voice, but she can't. She's not here, and besides, it's her voice that allows it to rot and fester. After all, she's the one that put these ideas here to begin with. That day, the house was quiet, until my I'm home rings throughout each still room. There is no response, but that's not abnormal anymore. I know where I could find her. My mother sits in the back room of the house, the TV gurgling news stories, which fill the empty space. A glass of orange juice sits innocently on the table next to her, but I know better. She looks at me, and a customary exchange of greetings pass between us. They are nothing compared to how they were before. We were so close before. Now, my mother speaks to me with a vacancy in her voice. The warm and comforting smile I knew growing up looks different, tense, and strained. I sit next to her on the small couch, sinking into the cushions. I want her back. Not this woman who spends most of her time sleeping, arguing with my dad, or complaining about me and my sisters. This woman clings to some distant past like a phantom. She tells... She tells me more than the others, so I have to be her shrink at 17, at least when she's not screaming at me. I listen to her silently. She is still, but she sounds like a carousel spinning round and round. Repetitive, distorted sounds leak from her. My mother isn't going anywhere as she runs on a mental treadmill while her body remains sitting on the couch, her seemingly permanent position these days. Her eyes are dim and burning with a deep anger. Her voice is harsh and unforgiving as she recounts the problems with her brother and her childhood. I listen, but only half-heartedly. A slight irritation blooms within me. I've heard these stories at least a hundred times by now, and nothing changes. There's nothing I can do but watch her slave over old memories, old pains that seem as fresh to her as the day they were inflicted. 
I find myself staring at someone I don't even want to know anymore. But that makes me disgusting. My conscience shouts out, guilty. I wish this person in front of me would give my mom back and just disappear. With one small misstep, I am now on trial. I've become public enemy number one, and she's the judge and jury. My crime is simple. I've betrayed her and her side, the Chinese side. I guess I shouldn't have brought up the new anime I started, but she never acted this way before about it, and I was just trying to make conversation. Her frown deepens and the air thickens. My mouth closes immediately. She suddenly hates anime. I mean, I knew she didn't really have an interest, but has she despised it this whole time? You do know what they did to our people. She hisses. I am pinned down like the frog in my science class. I push through my unease and tell her steadily, evenly. I know, Mom. To justify my hobby, I delicately add, but that's the past, and we should move on. This makes her angrier. My words ignite an ember nestled in my mother's mind. Her voice rises. Her face contorts. She gives her father's history again. How he left China for a better life. How he had to leave his wife behind since they were too poor. How he had to escape from the Japanese, from them. She never gives specific details about it, and I have to wonder if she even knows. After all, if she did, the story wouldn't be so vague. She'd want me to know, right? Later, I'll fill myself in, in an attempt to understand. And we'll learn that during World War II, ten to twenty million Chinese were killed because of Japanese expansion. But the only thing that seems clear to my mother is that the Japanese are to blame for everything: the loss, the suffering, and by watching anime, I have somehow sided with them, like I am actively joining the enemy's ranks and spitting in her face. I say nothing. As her words slash at me, their tone catching my skin like barbed wire. I'm not listening anymore. I don't want to hear her. Tears are bubbling forth, and suddenly, more than ever, I want her to go away. I don't even know this person. Why do I even talk to you still? Why are you looking at me like that? I'm just trying to help you. I don't want you to stay imprisoned in your past. Why are you trying to destroy me? Why do you want me to give up something that actually makes me happy? Why do you think I'm the traitor? Am I the enemy? Has she been disappointed in me all this time? If I was different, would this be happening? I think back to the past three years, during which time anime has basically become my life, my escape, my own special thing, just for me. My thoughts are drowning and choking me. I don't want to hear this anymore. Don't you have any loyalty? My mother is still going. Loyalty. I stare at her face, and I don't know who or what I'm even looking at. Who are you? My mother is questioning my loyalty. Her daughter, who just wants to make her proud, 
who tries every day to make her smile again? The one who sits here on this couch with her? Every day? Where's my loyalty? I look straight at her for the first time since this all started and tell her, you're right, loyalty? I guess I have none, Mom. She says nothing. Afterwards, I will wonder if she meant what she said, if she could really be that upset about me watching anime, if she really did think I was a traitor, an enemy, a disappointment, all because of some cartoons. I decide that when the time is right, I will tell her it's not like that. It's not like I don't do anything linked to my own culture. I'll remind her that I've collected tons of Chinese trinkets and that I've never renounced my heritage once. I'll talk to her, try to reason with her, try to prove it to her. I don't utter a single word that day, though. Instead, I resign myself to wait. I'll be stronger later, I tell myself. I'll be better later, I tell myself. We can always talk later, I tell myself. But we won't talk later. Just a few months from now, I will find my mother on the couch, sleeping like always. Except on that day, it's not like always. And I'm told to stay in my room where my dad thinks his panic can't reach me. I obey, not realizing that this will be the last memory I'll ever have of her in this house. My sister tells the cops that she had tripped and fell the night before. She tells them how my mother got up, how she said she was fine. But everything wasn't fine. Everything got worse. I should have known it could have gotten worse. Three days later, around midnight, we get the call. They told my dad it was peaceful. In my reflection on the laptop's black screen, I see her eyes in mine, sort of. They are half hers, anyway. I've been told I look more like my dad, but I always thought differently. Once I press this button, I know there's no turning back. And so I do. I press it and move on to the next choice. Which anime will it be this time? Well, Mom, which one is most likely to drown out the voice you left behind in my head? Melissa! Oh my god. This piece has got to, like, give me... It gave me so many feels when I was reading this on the bus. When I was reading it the first time you sent it to me, and then again... Oh my god, it was just so many, so many topics in this essay, in your piece. It was like the topic of, like we discussed prior, the topic of race between the Chinese and Japanese, and the topics of your relationship with your mother and how ethnicity plays a role in it as well. Thanks. <laughs> it's really nice to be here. <laughs> I'm awkward. <laughs> so, um... Melissa, your piece was amazing. There was such a rawness to it that I loved. And, you know, I felt the, uh, the anger and the sadness of, uh, of losing your mother and somehow feeling that you, you know, betrayed her in some sense. Um, but in the, in the piece, uh, you mentioned that your friends, you mentioned that your friends had asked you various times if you realized you were Chinese and not Japanese. How did this question make you feel back then? And how do you feel about it now? 
Um, well, back then I didn't really think about it because I was like, oh, whatever, you know. You know, like, I know who I was. I knew who I was. I still know who I am for the most part. And it's like, <laughs> it's fine. Like, I knew they were joking. It was cool. And even looking back at it now, I'm like, I think I still approach it with that kind of, like, innocent view. Like, oh, I mean, it's just a joke. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I do realize that there's, like, a bit more of a serious aspect behind it. Yes. Plus the fact that they're like, oh, Melissa, since you love, like, Japanese stuff so much, you have to, like, marry a Japanese guy. I'm like, <laughs> why do I have to do that? <laughs> exactly. So is your Chinese heritage important to you? I, I really think it's important to me. I mean, I wish I could do more with it. But, mm-hmm. like, with, the event, with, like, certain things that happened with my um, family, it just doesn't work out sometimes. But, you know, I recently learned how to make mooncakes, so that has to count for something. <laughs> so, um, do you feel that you identify in some way to your mother's culture? Why or why not? Well, I do, because, I mean, I've always liked it. I always thought it was, like, really pretty for some reason. <laughs> I was like, oh my god, look at the dragons flying around. They're so cute. And, I don't know. And plus, my dad was always like, oh, if you're going to fill out forms and say what your ethnicity is, you know, you got to put down Asian so you can get more money. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I felt like I was more Chinese than I am, like, you know, Caucasian white because it's more like, it was something more pure because my dad's a mixture of, like, a whole bunch of different European countries. Mm-hmm. So it's like, and my mom was just Chinese. So it's like, that's a little more, like, solid, I feel like. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> Yeah, it gives you, like, a sense of identity. Um, and another aspect of your identity that you weren't born with, it, it, it gives you a kind of identity. And another thing that gives you identity but that you weren't born with is anime. It's such a big part of you now. And, like, even right now, as I look at you, you're in a shirt with, the, <laughs> with an anime character on it. Took it the free promo. <laughs> free promo melissa okay um anime in this piece is both a means of comfort and a source of pain as it reminds you of your mother's words but still gives you something to hold on to so why was anime such a comfort for you before your mother questioned your loyalties all right well before that i mean i was a little anti-social nugget <laughs> So I had, like, I really never did anything after school. I always got my homework done, like, insanely early because I know friends at lunch. So, you know, I never had anything to do. So when I started watching anime, it was like, oh, my God, look at these, like, characters. I don't know. I just really liked them. It was kind of like watching a lot of the novels and stuff I was reading at the time because I was reading a lot of, like, supernatural fantasy, you know, adventure, stuff like that. So it was like when I got into anime was like oh my god look at all this like crazy things and i don't know it just made me like feel really good it was like wow they're all like friends (laughs) and you that's so sweet oh my goodness i love that and so you you still think that that's um a really big part of you and you as a person now yeah i it's really still a major part of my life and everything because uh, yeah, in my pa- in my uh, story I discuss how 
you know, it brings this pain, but it also really gave me a lot of comfort during that time when she passed away. It was, um, it, I mean, my taste got a little darker, but it was still like really, it still really helped me get through it and to keep moving forward and continue to go to school and like not stop my life completely because my mother had passed away. That's something really beautiful that um, that I brought because we we had the class together when you first shared this piece that's now been you know like edited and changed up to you know reflect how you really felt. But the main thing that I like took away from that first time that you like read it was that this was something that your mom just did not like whatsoever. But the comfort that you found in it was so strong that even though it might have felt like you had betrayed her in a sense by you know still liking these things that it was still something that was just like so a part of you that you still like am i explaining this correctly like you still held on to it even you know after after that happened so can you like like explain those those feelings for me if you can (laughs) well all right i'll do my best because i sometimes i don't even know (laughs) what's going in my head but um <laughs> it's like I mean my sisters had like I have like three other sisters so um we all kind of started watching it a little bit at the time when I was in like a freshman in high school and then they kind of dropped off like the bandwagon and I like just <laughs> clung to it with like a little death grip with my little grippers and uh <laughs> and I just I don't know. I felt like it was something that I didn't have to share with them because they had zero interest in it now. Mm. So it was something like my own terrain. Because, I mean, we all had, like, similar interests always growing up. Like, we all, like, liked to draw. We all read for the most part. It was, like, we all shared basically everything. So having this one thing for myself, it's, like, I couldn't... I didn't want to give it up. And I, I just found something that really... I really enjoyed. It was better than whatever was on TV at that point in my life. I completely understand as, you know, I have a lot of siblings too and finding this one thing that you can take comfort in and um, sometimes even you're really good at um, and makes you feel different from them is something that it's always comforting and, uh, you know, especially being in a large family. (laughs) I also, um, in this piece, I really admire the neutral approach that you take with regards to the prejudice that your mother mentions between the Chinese and the Japanese. Um, The advice that you give her is, but that's the past and we should move on. Like, I feel like that is an amazing piece of advice that you give her and is also like a good advice to give like these, these individuals that come from these specific lands where like, they made these mistakes in the past and as well like we have like we're in another century from what they were prior to and it's very important to like collaborate to one another so that there's progress and development overall (laughs) yeah i mean like even like i was raised like we shouldn't like judge everyone based on anything like we like, treat others how you wanted to be treated. That's basically how I grew up. And we were just, like, a pretty neutral household. Like, we didn't, like, really have, like, anything 
any we didn't have any troubles or whatever like for the most part like we didn't worry about like oh this person's like indian so let's like hate them or whatever just for an example but i don't know i always liked history and i was like okay we can learn from the past but i don't think we like i never wanted to hold a grudge because it just seemed like so much wasted energy so and like this um main issue really came up towards the end of my mother's life when I'm not even exactly sure what happened to trigger it or whatever. Like, I've heard, like, what my dad thinks it was and, like, what other people might have thought it was. But I could never identify it myself. It just, like, seemed to rear its ugly head one day. And so we just had, like, a very nice household in the beginning. It was very, like, supportive. Like, you can do whatever you want, Melissa. You can be whatever you want to be. We'll support you no matter what. And then towards, obviously, when I got in high school, that's really when things start to take that, uh, the turn that it does in this paper. So it's just, uh, it was just, like, shocking. That's kind of, like, how what I want to, like, put in my piece. Because, like, whoa, this suddenly happened. It was just something out of the blue. That does sound like something that's extremely difficult and like to share with other people especially being like I I have known you for a solid year now and you're just a very kind of just like a quieter person just like closed off so I just really want to thank you for like giving us this (laughs) gift of a piece and for sharing it with us and letting us be a part of it as well yeah thank you for having me here it's really like amazing So our last piece of the night is entitled Beniana by our fellow co-host, Edward Serrate. And this piece is actually an award winner. And here's a little bit about this author. Edward Serrate is a 21-year-old Bolivian-American from Corona, Queens, New York, who is currently a senior at John Jay College for Criminal Justice, where he is pursuing a BA in International Criminal Justice with a minor in writing. He likes to write about themes that are influenced by his Amazonian Andean culture and traditions. He recently won the Patricia Licklider Award for Best Work of Nonfiction Personal Essay for his piece, Beniana, at the John Jay College English Award Ceremony. Outside of classes, he dances in a Bolivian folklore group called Fraternidad Cultural Pasión Boliviana, where he dances a variety of styles, including... Edward, you have to help me out with this one. All right, all right. Tobas, tinkus, chacarera, salaque, macheteros, cueca, and taquirari. Thank you. (laughs) Participating in events, galas, and parades ranging from 10 to 47 blocks. He can also be found making South American bracelets and selling them in the gentrified parts of New York at regulated prices, which was a method he used to fund uh, his recent trip to Tanzania this summer, where he traveled across many cities throughout Tanzania, such as Dar, Dar es Salaam, Bagamoyo, uh, Arusha, and uh, Zanzibar, as well as participating in leading theater classes in Mama Lin's Light in Africa Orphanage at the foot of the Kilimanjaro region. So let's take a listen to Beniana. I stand staring at Lake Isiboro in Mojos, Bolivia. Its horizon seems eternal. 
I walk into its glistening water, which rises the deep rise sink. It reaches my clavicles as I lay back. Floating, my hair slithers in the water as I admire the clouds. They are a hazy gray, preparing to cry. I feel the weeds from below envelop the smalls of my ankles when Abuelita shouts, No te vayas hasta el fondo, carajo! Gesturing for me to return to the edge. She is afraid for me. She is afraid because of the myth. Because of Isiboro. She told me about it many times. It is believed in Mojos that a serpentine creature lures people to the edges of their canoes, dragging them into the depths of it. The myth originated from a boy named Isiboro, whose mother was washing clothes at the lake. When he suddenly fell off the edge, he drowned and was transformed into a serpent that is believed to have cursed all the bodies of water in the state of Beni. I used to question her superstition, but I have learned not to. No one knows this place better than her. San Ignacio de Mojos, Beni. This is where my abuelita is from. Mojos, 1938. San Ignacio de Mojos, Bolivia, the land that witnessed her birth. It was the land that watched her in the mornings as she'd awaken alongside the macaws who'd flaunt their wings with shades of yellow that decorated the sky when airborne. They accompanied her when she'd walk out her doorless home, that which was held up by clay-like greda and sticks which protected the household from the violent floods that flushed through El Beni when the bananas were ripe. Washing the yawns from her face, she was accustomed to soaking her obsidian locks in a barrel. Tamed by the same water, she'd gather her hair in three sections, braiding it into a thick twist. The braid looked like a loaf of chocolate cake. That which she craved. Since they often couldn't eat for days, the illusion itself satisfied her hunger most of the time. As she'd stroke her hair those mornings, her younger sister Betty would stumble home through the bamboo gates, which were held up by the dry mud. Betty would tease my abuelita. Por lo menos llegué hoy a gusta, así que deja de joder. She tried to justify her behavior. Another wild night out. Betty was the middle child. The darker one. The younger one. She wore her hair short. It bristled her shoulders whenever she'd turn around to wave, leaving into the dangers of the night to hang out and party. She was considered an alley cat, when in heat, she vanished into the streets only to return with a full belly. They considered locking her in, but they lacked the resources to keep the cold out at night, no less those to keep Betty in. Not in your wildest dreams would you witness a paved street or a house made of bricks or even stone in Mojos. The town was untouched, spared maybe. Regardless of its natural beauty though, Abuelita knew this wasn't living. Here they struggled day to day for food, where drinking water was a privilege, not a right. My abuelita used to say, we walked the streets in chanclas. It was all we could ever afford. Today, my abuelita still has the rough skin that the dust and dirt caused at the peaks of her heels, which from time to time would remind her of the dryness, the discomfort from those days, from the chanclas. She wanted to leave the Yuho Muiva household, 
it was a dead end for the people that lived there. Everybody there lacked everything. There was never enough food to go around, and she was always left starving, always letting the younger ones nourish themselves first. The calories allowed the younger ones to develop sooner. They would soon go out to let the boys fill them up, let them serenade their ears with lies that brought their smiles into a gleam. Let them touch their recently developed bodies as they were promised the stars they couldn't deliver. Unlike her sisters, she never let a boy touch her. She was determined and hardworking and simply didn't have the time. She knew what she wanted as she sought ways to find better means of living. She would not find it here with a full belly and another mouth to feed with food they didn't have. It was difficult enough already to fight the poverty with Betty, who never understood that the last thing anyone needed around here was another mouth to feed. Betty had two kids and one on its way. All the fathers were unknown, just like her nocturnal adventures were. No, not that, not me. Abuelita must have said to herself, she would find a way out. Her rough fingers were fueled by desire as each needle penetrated the fabrics she embroidered. She needed to find a way to unstitch herself from them. They tied her down, but she didn't let her family restrain her. The needle was her weapon against the world, her only ally in this mission to leave Mojos, she knew. It was 1955, and she was 17. Their mother eventually fell ill, having to travel to the capital of Sucre in search of recovery. Abuelita was left behind. She was capable of caring for herself. On the other hand, Betty was blimping. She needed help as weeks of gestation mounted inside of her. One afternoon, when Abuelita was wandering under the palm trees wearing a sombrero de sao, which was worn out but still protective, she was handed a wedding dress. She was told to embroider it by the man who ran the house of God. Her needle repeatedly pierced and pierced the gown's fabric for two nights straight. Soon, at the foot of the church stairs, the priest stood by the bride, Magdalena, who came to pick up the dress from Abuelita. Her hair was a corn shade of blonde, crisp and frizzy with peroxide. The effects of the cheap liquid signified a luxury my abuelita couldn't even afford. She handed her the dress, nervously. Tenes que venir a Sucre para que me hagas los ajustes, pues, she squealed. In love with her work, Magdalena immediately invited my abuelita to Sucre, the capital, 11 hours away, where she would be getting married. The priest raised his caterpillar eyebrows at the request. But abuelita knew that a change of fate was finally upon her. She was sucre-bound. She was leaving mojos, and all because of some dress, because of her embroidering on some dress. They were leaving that same night, which meant that Betty no longer had a babysitter. She did not feel sorry. She smooched Betty on the cheek, begged her not to be a puta while she was gone. And then she left. She left mojos. Se va para Trinidad. She jumped into the rear of the truck with only a potato bag. It was dusty but durable, and it carried the little she owned along with a papaya she had stolen from her neighbor's tree. She sat atop the grains, those being exported from Mojos, 
like her. Magdalena sat next to her brother, whose complexion was olive but pale. He looked rather sickly, my abuelita remembers. As they left through the trail out of Mojos, she saw Lake Isiboro in the distance, clouds gathering, bruising into a shade of gray. They prepared to cry. The truck slid, struggling through the dirt road. The bananas had just ripened, and with that always came the fury of the Amazon rain. Finally, reaching the Rio Mamore, the truck steered onto a raft that would carry them across the river. She moved to sit lower on a bag of rice. Droplets furiously struck her face as the sky roared, pouring into the waters below their raft. Was this what it took to leave Mojos? Would she even make it out? Magdalena's brother fidgeted. He slipped and she reached, but he fell out of her grasp. He fell from the truck and onto the edge of the raft, fracturing his elbow. His eyes suddenly widened, popping open in sheer pain as screams echoed from the depths of his throat. The wound looked like a bite then, just a bite. He was bitten, but just before, he was swallowed up whole by the water that claimed him. The serpent disappeared with Magdalena's brother, and he never resurfaced. The priest told Magdalena, Isiboro se lo llevo. As her desperate cries overthrew the rain and it stopped, the sky must have realized that its cries weren't as justified as Magdalena's were. For Magdalena had lost her brother to Isiboro, la capital. In Sucre, Chukisaca, my abuelita was welcomed by a wind that scraped her knees. She clutched them together, hiding their inner walls from it, while Magdalena cloaked her in an alpaca wool poncho. She never knew the coldness of the Andes until then. She'd only ever known mojos, its warm air, its sun. Finding a moment to wander out into the hospital where her mother had come to recover, she entered and approached the nurse. She is led into the room where she finds her mother on the bed. Her two younger sisters clutch to one another like kittens at the foot of the hospital bed. Picking them up, she set them on her lap and wrapped them with the arms of the poncho, snuggling her freckles against their cheeks. Her mother was to be discharged the following day, and they would all head back to Mojos immediately. She would not go with them, she explained. She could not. Not after her hard work had finally gotten her to the capital. The week following her mother's departure was Magdalena's wedding. As she prepared to walk down the aisle, my abuelita was still sewing augmentations. Her body had widened. Pounds of grief clung onto her, like her brother had clung for his life. She finished, needle, thread, and scissors in her hands, just in time for the ceremony. But before she walked to the priest, Magdalena leaned to her capable seamstress and said, Don't. Go back to Mojos. You can make it out just like me. But my abuelita wasn't really fond of the cold. So go to Santa Cruz then. It's warm like Benny and big like Sucre. Santa Cruz de la Sierra. Following Magdalena's advice, she made her way to El Oriente or to the East to the city of Santa Cruz de la Sierra, where businesses flooded the streets with more job opportunities than any Beniana could ever dream of. She arrived late afternoon, around the time that the sky was painted in colors of pink and blue from the sun's farewell that day. 
She wore a lace dress, which adorned her from the top of her chest and flowed to the middle of her thigh. Originally white, the lace had become stained due to the sand that each gust of wind threw at her. At the bus terminal, she noticed that vendors observed her. Malicious eyes traced her tiny waist, which followed into the curve of her back and into the lower of her glutes, where the dress ended and her legs began. She quickly untied her braids, which immediately concealed her upper chest and shoulders, reaching the low part of her back. It shielded her from their view, but not from their thoughts. She guarded herself with her needle too, slipping it in between her fingers, ready to stab in the event that any of the terminal vendors decided to follow her. Leaving the terminal, she walked in solitude to her cousin's house, which is where she would stay from now on. Upon arriving, she was unable to enter through a wall with a knob. Startled, the knob began to rotate and the wall suddenly opened, revealing her cousin on the opposite side. She had never seen a house with a door before. Augusta, you're finally here. Thank goodness that you got here before dark, she greeted her. Eventually, Abuelita brought her whole family over from Mojos. Her mother and the girls were amazed at the city's paved streets. Its houses had doors. Betty brought her three kids, not four, due to her recent miscarriage. They were together and they were happy. The togetherness lasted only briefly, though. Her mother fell ill again. And when she did, she gave her daughter strict instructions. Marry the man named George, who was economically stable and who had taken an interest in her. Her mother whispered, Para que te cuide, mi niña, faintly, as she grew unconscious, lids shutting as both rows of lashes became one never to separate again. Cochabamba. Abuelita honored her mother's last wish and accepted George's marriage proposal. He took her to Cochabamba for the ceremony. The city was mainly deserted and empty, just like the hearts of its people, she explained. She also felt empty when George's siblings showered her with insults and slurs. She was lighter-skinned and Amazonian. They were darker and Andino. ¿A dónde ha ido este a buscarse la esta? They joked, asking where he'd found this one. A whistling sound slid in between each word, screeching her ears. They're Spanish? Horrifyingly different than hers. George was of a lively cinnamon complexion. He was tall and regular as opposed to her. She was short, young, and as pale as porcelain. As she prepared for the portrait, she dressed up in a room separate from his. She wore a dress he bought for her. It was white, like the refreshing shades of milk that she could never afford in Mojos. It was a beautiful dress, sure. But it lacked grace, she thought. Slowly, she dismantled the pearl necklace that came along with it, piece by piece, just moments before she was to pose for the portraits. She couldn't have a portrait taken in a dress like this. And so she began sewing on it. They would have to wait while she created a pattern with those pearls, one that brought the dress to life. Wearing the newly fashioned dress, she walked calmly to the type of wall she'd never seen before. A mirror. 
It shimmered like the water in Mojos, in which she used to see herself. I imagine her thoughts went something like this. Looking into this wall, I see a girl, a girl's whose dress was identical to mine. Perhaps they brought it for her too. She has obsidian locks like mine. Her feline eyes, a dark shade similar to those of the late Mojeño sky. Her face clear, spared of blemish. She looks like Papa, who I cherish. She breathes whenever I do, blinks whenever I do, doubts whenever I do. She is a hija del sol, just like me. And then she joined George, who dressed in a tux similar to that of the Andean condor. It was a dark suit with a white collar to show his class. His lips stretched when he saw her, exposing the white bones connected to his cherry-toned flesh. A strong ray of light, a flash, stung her pupils still, even as the photographer handed them the thick paper. On it, she saw the girl that looks like Papa again. However, her expression was dry, drained of any emotion. Nothing like her Papa's. She rubbed her eyes in a circular motion. It was 1957. She was 19. And he was 35. Later, she gathered herself for sleep, as her father always told her that the duende, a type of goblin, would come get her if she stayed up late. On a soft mattress, she found slumber until, afraid, she was awakened by creaking steps entering the room. I thought it was El Duende, she told me. But it was George, her new husband. He traced the road that her small waist and wide hips created. He touched her in sacred places. She felt a repetitive burn and a sting over and over. Her comfort, she learned that night, was not a priority to him. She awakened, weak, and uncovered herself to find the sheets mapped with a spilt sangria shade. It penetrated through the sheets. Like them, she felt stained, tainted. Gathering the sheets together, she ran to wash them. She washed and washed, desperately attempting to drain the gushes of dried red blood. But it remained. Soon, they left Cochabamba. It was no place for my abuelita. She was tied to the warmth of her land. They returned to Mojos. It was her last time. De vuelta. Traveling back to Benny in hopes of recovering her father's relics. Instead, she found the house raided and almost empty, just like her memories of him. She eventually gave birth to her firstborn, Augusta Mary, who they called Mary to avoid the confusion between both mother and daughter. Mary was followed by her sister, Beatriz, who is two years younger than her. Five years later, 1963. Mary was tall for her age. Her hair fell in waves down to her waist like her mother's, but its shades were a cherry brown like the wood of canoes. Beatriz was shorter, and her locks twisted and tangled like coils of wire. 
The two girls, like their mother, were independent and hardworking. They would pass their mother threads and count the beads while she worked. They were critical to her masterpieces, the dresses she created for rich women who came from near and far to reap the benefits of her tired, bony fingers magic. She had to keep working, my abuelita. George would show up from time to time, but he had abandoned them. They had just returned from Las Siete Calles, the tailoring district in Santa Cruz, Abuelita carrying four bulks of cloth and both Mary and Beatriz holding a bag of thread and needles. The three entered their house, placing their bags on the floor. Augusta sent Mary into the kitchen to get them all water. On her tippy toes, she could reach the faucet. He grabbed the cloths, tossing and swinging them as Beatriz ducked under the table to avoid getting hit. He grabbed Augusta by her obsidian locks and pulled her side to side with rage as he ranted about her spending too much on her stupid sewing materials. Mary then emerged from the kitchen, and the two cups in her hands fell as both mother and daughter looked into each other's eyes. Mary cried in fear, but Augusta's tears were of anger. Suddenly... It was more abundantly clear than ever that my abuelita refused to be restrained and held captive by the spontaneous abuse of a man who she'd married only because her mother asked her to. A man who didn't deserve her. He didn't value her worth, her strength, her sewing talents, her hard work, nor her struggle. That which fueled every bit of her being. Grasping his forearm, she sunk her teeth into his skin, biting him, and pierced his flesh with her spear-like claws, sharp like needles. Released from his grasp, she grabbed the first thing within reach, a metal tube, which she swung with all her might, hitting his shin and breaking it. He would spend the rest of his life with an eternal limp. He collapsed on the floor, shattered, broken, defeated, defeated by this creature of the Amazon, this hija del sol from San Ignacio de Mojos. She saw the blood. She knew he required stitches. And so she bent down, my abuelita, bent down towards him with her needle and went to work on him. He looked helpless, like a weak child. She sunk her needle into his wound and broke it in half. She dug it deep into his open flesh and he felt it finally, the pain she'd known her whole life. The girls, usually hardworking like their mother, weren't willing to lend a hand that day. And so they left. The three girls left. Augusta Yujo Muiva, my abuelita. She belonged to no city. She belonged to no man. She would later find herself sewing dresses and costumes for the Broadway stages of New York City. Her fingers stiff from years and years of work, she felt fueled by the joy that she had finally made it. She'd made it out of her hometown and into one of the biggest towns in the world. Abuelita pulls me out of the lake's water as it begins to bubble and shiver. The sky begins to cry right then. The bananas have begun to ripen. Pulled from my daydream, my abuelita, 
back in her hometown, with me by her side now, will not allow Isiboro to claim another boy, to claim the fruit of her struggle. Isiboro does not know that no one knows this place, San Ignacio de Mojos, Beni, like she does. Not even him. En las profundidades de la Amazonia, donde lo fantástico es real. From the depths of the Amazon, where the fantastic is real. I adore everything about this piece, Edward. It's it's just like um it it takes me to like a completely different place. It's just like I, I go on a journey with Abuelita and with everyone and it's I just really, really love it. I don't know. I totally agree, Karen. Um, it's beautiful, and the the weaving of uh, the myth of Isiboro is is artfully done, and it, it's so beautiful to see something to share that, he, that you were able to share something of your culture and your grandmother's um, hometown and mm. incorporated so well into this story. I'm really, um, I'm really happy that you guys enjoyed it. That you guys enjoyed it (laughs) (laughs) it it wasn't even just us that enjoyed it like the english department thought it was amazing enough that it got first place in the creative nonfiction writing category (laughs) thank you it was um honestly it was unexpected for me because i never like imagined ever winning an award for writing specifically Mm. like um like, I always mention thanks to Professor Madraza for always, like, oh, including, like, her handing me her support and Lee guiding me through this journey, which is writing and learning the different um, aspects to this art. Mm. Oh, so cute. <laughs> so we have some questions for you. Uh, your piece is beautifully written, and it's filled with tons of imagery. How did you go about creating this piece? Was all the detail from interviewing your grandmother, or did you weave in some of your own observations when you vid- visited Mojos? Um, creating this piece, I didn't specifically interview them. I just gathered the different, the, gathered from the different instances that she would always tell me about her journey, her struggle, whenever she'd mention, like, oh, like, certain topics, like, certain triggers th- throughout our lives. Like, um, she'd mention like some she'd like come upon like telling her story to her she's like oh when i was when back in mojos i did this like back when i was in cochabamba i did this back when i was in new york when i was in texas when i was this she'd always like mention little bits and pieces and as well as my mother as well contributing and my aunt my tia and all the people that like surrounded her kind of like gave me instances and drops to create this piece i think that is incredible and and like beautiful in a sense that you wove this story of your grandma not only from her but from everyone in your family that surrounded her and it it's so it's just a beautiful piece yeah absolutely it's one of the i believe it's the second literary journalism piece that we have on the podcast and the ability that you have to tell another person's story multiple people's stories actually is like it's, it's it's great it's just really well done. You really characterized everyone really well and weaved in all of their different lives to form this, this very comprehensive account of what the story that otherwise would have been lost is like. 
I love it. I love it so much. Yeah, um, that aspect of it not being lost was really important to me because I felt like her story always needed its own spotlight because she always kind of felt like ashamed of sort mm-hmm. of the struggle she had to go through. She never wanted us to experience the same struggle that she lived as well as my mother never wanted us to experience the struggles that she witnessed and lived as well. So I find it like, I find that's a tribute to them where I give them their spotlight that they've deserved for a very long time. That's so sweet. My heart. The feels. <laughs> that's, that's, uh, that's that. Okay. That kind of brings me to, because you felt that they were of that importance to you know get their stories out before writing this piece like what was your relationship like with your grandmother and what's it like now after the piece like has she has she read it i'm curious um she isn't really a reader but like i mentioned to her the aspects i discussed to her many of the imagery many of the scenes that i created i was like Aulita, how does this sound like Aww. especially when she came back because she recently came back from bolivia yeah. and also she also like um experienced winning the award with me because i'd always tell her like we want we won this award it wasn't only me so my relationship with my abuelita is it's it's um it's good because mm-hmm. we were for the first like 10 years of my life we lived with her and then we don't she lives with my tia now so our relationship is like getting better i always like i always look up to her because she's always like the the motivation for me to persevere and to continue to because she's the role model that i try to follow because she makes me um believe that if I try hard enough, I will achieve things such as the things that she achieved in her life. Are there things you didn't know about her past, even after living with her for so long, that you found surprising? Or did you just elaborate on things that you had previously heard before when interviewing her? Um, I didn't really know about the relationship that she had with her husband. Mm. Um, I didn't know the, the type of person he was or how he treated her how he treated them as a whole which is why i don't consider him my grandfather Mm because i would never consider an individual like such as a grandfather all the power to you that's why my original name is eduardo serrate merida Mm -hmm. but i don't i don't embrace the merida Uh because that's his last name that's why i always whenever somebody asks me for my name i always say eduardo serrate yujo because yujo is the is the is the last name of my grandmother and the last name that I plan to hold on and embrace and empower for the rest of my life. I I that that that's that's just like <laughs> Stephen Cole without me. <laughs> that's that's just so powerful. Yeah, so yeah, it's so that. powerful. I I didn't know that. It's it's beautiful. I mean, this piece is a tribute to her, and you also made your name a tribute to her, which mm. is just even more just beautiful and profound i don't know it's so yeah, it, just, <laughs> it's, it shows her impact on your yeah. life so edward do you have any idea as to why your grandmother decided to on returning to mojos after establishing herself in new york what was your impression of her hometown when you first visited well um i feel she wanted to go with us so that she can like i mentioned in the piece demonstrate to us a piece of where we're all from of where because i never really knew where benny was like it's one of the most forgotten departments in this in the country of bolivia 
Um, it is um, a state that is rich in culture, rich in livestock, because it produces 70% of the meat production of all Bolivia. And it, it, um, it's a very, it's a very I, I consider it a very mystical place because it, it is just like so diverse in biodiversity, the colors, the parrots, the macaws, the, mm -hmm. the serpents, the crocodiles, the lizards, the, the, the palm trees, everything about the place is like so like surreal. Mm -hmm. But it was like an amazing experience going there because we didn't go through plane. We like took these little camioncitos through <laughs> and it was like raining like really, really hard. And me and my mom were like in the back seat of the truck sitting on top of like these little rice, these little rice bags because we were yeah, like, we were like going into this, into this little town from Trinidad into Mojos. And we had to cross that same um, Rio Mamore that mm -hmm. she crossed once. Ooh. And it was just so violently raining, and like it just was just like, like in the story. it was like sl the 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 camion like slid and everything, and I was like, "Mama, I'm gonna fucking die here." <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was just like so like taken back. And um, once we reached Mojos, like it rained for most of the time that we were there, but like she took us to where where she lived when she was young. Like she took us up to the this specific lake. And it was just so incredible because it's like a horizon that you see that is like never ending, even though it is just a lake. It was so crazy because we were like in, we were like dipping our feet inside the lake and I went like a little bit more in and like that the top of the lake starts to shiver, which makes it like so weird. Everything is like starts to act up and like we, I, I kind of got scared at the moment. I was like, damn, yo. But like it's like an, incre an incredible place because she always like wanted us to see where our origin was from which i find it very important for any individual that c that is of any type of descent to know where they came from to know their story to know the place where their where their whole family's story began that was so well said because you we can't appreciate where we're going if we don't know where we came from and all the sacrifices and struggles that those before us have made for us Exactly, Stephen. Like that's that's something that's so important. And on that note, we just want to say thank you, Edward, for being here with us and sharing these stories. It's not even like one story; it's so many lives that are encompassed in this one piece. So thank you so much for coming here thank and so sharing much, with us. Thank you for having me as a host and as a guest in this episode. Thank you so much. So that concludes this episode of the Life Out Loud podcast, the inaugural episode, Motherland, of the second season. We're all so excited to bring you new stories in the coming months and amplifying these younger voices from backgrounds you don't normally hear about in creative nonfiction. Um, we'd like to say thank you to everyone who m helps makes this possible, including our sound engineers, editors, our episode writers, our website developers, everyone behind the scenes here at Life Out Loud. And you can always find out more at www.lifeoutloudpodcast.com or by searching Life Out Loud Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. And to our audience, we hope you love these stories as much as we did. It was a joy to bring them to you. A very special thank you to everyone listening. We'll see you soon and good night. Good night. <laughs> <laughs>